For those who are listening here in this service and abroad, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church, and this is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message that I've simply entitled, Becoming Disciples with Discernment. Becoming Disciples with Discernment. I invite you to join me. You'll find our passage of study in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew and chapter number 7. Now as we look at Matthew 7, we're going to read the first six verses. But before we do, I want you to look with me at the thrust of the remainder of the chapter. I'm going to point out some keywords through the rest of the chapter so that we don't mistakenly disassociate it from what comes after. We'll connect what comes before in a moment. In Matthew chapter 7, our Lord Jesus said this, Judge not. That's verse number 1. In verse number 6, he says, Give not. In verse number 7, he says, Ask. In verse number 13, he says, Enter. In verse number 15, he says, beware. Hopefully you can see the movements that our Savior is going to make as he instructs his disciples. Now go back with me to verse number 1, and let's read verses 1 through 6 together. Jesus says to his disciples, Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And turn again and rend you. Lord, I pray that you'll enable me this morning to preach your word. I've prepared as best as I can, Lord, but I still feel feeble and frail. I ask, Lord, that somewhere through this message, I would disappear and decrease, and you would come to the forefront of each of our hearts and minds here today. It's your word that we cling to. It's your word that we hunger and thirst after. Lord, we hang on every word that you've said. And Father, it's nourishment to our soul. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us unction and power in this place today, that your word would go forth and accomplish the purpose to which you would send it, that there would be nothing in my life, nothing in my heart, to hinder what you would do in and through your word. Great physician, heal. Oh great physician, work on me. Your word is quick and powerful. It is sharper than anything else, any two-edged sword. I give you full permission and control this morning to lay me open. I trust you, Lord, that whatever surgery you perform will be for the betterment, and it will be to make me whole, closer conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, my Savior. May I look more like him by the time I'm done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Old William Penn, he said these words long ago. Pennsylvania, that's where we get William Penn from, right? We get, uh, actually, we get Pennsylvania from William Penn. He said these words. He said, They have a right to censure that have a heart to help. They have a right to censure who have a heart to help. Those are sound words, I think. 
And I do believe they correspond to what Jesus is teaching here. Yesterday, our trailmen, those that were able to join us, went to the Wings Over the Rockies Museum. What a time. Uh, I could have spent probably three weeks there and only made it through about three planes, one per week. I think we about, about an hour and a half in, we had made it through four planes as a group, and there were still plenty more to go. But what a time. We had a gentleman who served our country, and he led our group around and told us some things about some of the aircraft there. And one of the things he shared with us, I'm going to use this morning to help you think about where we're going, because it struck me. We were up on the, on the balcony. He was relating a story that happened to him when he, has, when he was serving, and he was working on the F-14 Tomcats. He was a Tomcat mechanic. And so he knew them inside and out, probably could take one apart and put it back together blindfolded. I don't know, that might be an exaggeration, but uh, he knew his stuff, and you could tell. Well, through the course of what he relayed to us, we found out that some of our Tomcats had landed, I think he said over in San Diego, uh, and there was a squadron there that had some problems with the canopy. The canopy is over the cockpit, and if the canopy doesn't come off right, then uh, if they eject, you know, there can be... uh, really bad things that happen if the canopy doesn't come off. And so, uh, long story short, somehow, some way, this, same, this squadron all the way in San Diego got a hold of him back here and said, we can't figure this thing out. We don't know how to get this canopy to function properly, and we're trying to figure it out. And once he heard what was going on, his words were just, stop, don't touch it. I'm going to come out there, and I'll take care of it. I'll fix it in five minutes, but don't touch it. Now, what we found out through the story is how in the world, I mean, this wasn't even his squadron. How did they find him? Well, they called an expert (laughs) because someone else who was a pilot overheard a conversation and they're, you know, toying around with this thing, trying to figure out how to get the canopy to work. And it's going to be a mess. And so this pilot says, you guys don't need to mess with that. I know somebody you need to call. You just need to call him and he knows how to fix it. And so they were best friends. It turns out this pilot and the mechanic they were best friends for multiple uh, multiple uh, deployments and different things, and so they knew each other very well. So later on, the the, uh, the mechanic said, you know, how did they find me? How did they know? I, I bet I know. And so he put the dots together. So why am I relating that to you? Because here they are. They're trying to fix a canopy that they can't figure out. And the mechanic told us where they had to work there was a, a little switch or something right there next to the thing that if they would have done the wrong thing, they could have damaged the aircraft beyond commission and possibly done even worse. And so that's why I said, don't touch it. You know, if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't need to mess with it. I'll come out and I'll take care of it. You fixed in five minutes. Sure enough, he gets out there, he looks at the two things and he does the right one and gets the canopy functioning and the Tomcat's back in service in no time. Now that, I think, illustrates how... We need to approach what's going on with us as followers of Christ. In the sermon on the so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began in chapter number five of Matthew with his introduction on the Beatitudes, giving us the blueprints for the blessed life. And those are those are filled with divine passage. You know, if we walk this way, then we can expect blessing to come from God. God's going to rain down upon us. Blessed are, and you fill in the blank with those Beatitudes. That was the way he introduced his message to his disciples that day. Then he begins to talk about their influence of being salt and light and how they need to penetrate darkness and they need to hold back corruption. And they'll do that as they're living that blessed life, fulfilling 
walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then he turns to the law to straighten some things out in their heart and mind to help them understand the place of the Old Testament, really, and how that strengthens our walk with God, that God's concerned not so much that we get the outside right and that we you know, follow the commandments we even read that were carried over into Romans earlier. We read, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not enough just to do the outward and make sure that that's in line. God looks at the heart. And so is there hatred? Is there, is there lust? Anything in your heart that would take you away from God or take his place in your life? Jesus deals with that. Then he moves from the disciple and community, really, and how we relate with God and each other to our communion. How do we function as followers of Christ? What do we do when it comes to almsgiving? And I'm going to cling to that word still, almsgiving. I'm not talking about charitable giving. I'm talking about almsgiving. Doing things to help others who can't give back. Almsgiving. And so how do we do that as followers of Christ? It ought to be for the right motive. How do we pray? It ought to be in our closet where our Father sees in secret. He rewards openly. And we follow the pattern, the model of prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He goes through all of that. And then he deals with this aspect of fasting that I think few people understand really today. And I shared some insight with you about what I I feel the Bible teaches about fasting. Saying no to self so that you can help someone else find Jesus. If you're fasting for the gospel, if you're fasting for the word of God to take root, then I think you're on the right course. If you're fasting because you got in trouble with God, you might want to address why you're fasting. Just saying. Now, in chapter number 7, after he has dealt at the close of chapter number 6 with where our treasure ought to be, where are we laying up that treasure? It ought to be in heaven. We ought to have a mind for the eternal things rather than the temporal things. We become so short-sighted sometimes. Now Jesus moves into this area of being disciples of discernment. I almost wanted to call this the disciple in the courtroom, but that doesn't work because if you go back to chapter 5, that's a courtroom scenario before the law. And so I don't want to confuse you. But here we're talking about making judgments. Jesus says, judge not. And surely we can understand that that doesn't mean that we throw discernment to the wind. Right? You just discerned? (laughs) I mean, every waking moment we have to make decisions between right and wrong. So is Jesus saying that we shouldn't judge at all? Let me illustrate it this way. There was a time when scarcely a person in the Western world would not, everybody would have been able to quote John 3.16. Maybe that verse still is in a place of prominence as being the best known verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Maybe, you know, but I, I don't know. I wonder if Matthew chapter number 7 and verse number 1 isn't taking its place in precedence as being the best-known verse. Why do I say that? Well, I do believe it's true. For instance, I'm going to make a few statements. Let me see if you agree with me. Oh, good, you're sitting down. Homosexuality is a sin. Homosexuals need to repent of that sin in order to be right with God. All premarital sex is wrong. 
all of it. Two people living together out of wedlock means they're living in adultery if they're being intimate. <laughs> Transgenderism is transgression against a thrice holy God who fearfully and wonderfully creates every individual human being into beauty of his creation. And it destroys the sanctity of life. Statement number four. Abortion is murder. It is the killing of a human being. Those doctors who perform abortions, they're going to have to seriously deal with the question of whether or not they are conscientiously guilty of taking innocent human life and violating the very Hippocratic oath that they promised to uphold. Statement number five. You ready to pack up and go home now, aren't you? I am. Statement number five. Drug abuse is wicked. Hello, Colorado. It is involvement with mind-altering substances that helps lead souls to hell. Souls hang in the balance. Now when statements like that are made, the world immediately goes and runs right to their favorite Bible verse. Here they come, trotting it out. Judge not that you be not judged. And then it will usually be followed up with something along these lines. Well, who died and made you the judge? I have to check myself right here because... The flesh in me wants to say, well, Jesus died and his word is the Jew. <laughs> Jesus deals with that here in this passage, by the way, so I would encourage you to think before you speak. What Jesus said, now I'm going to put an ellipsis in here because we need to trace the whole thought. You have your Bible, I want you to see it. I want you to see what Jesus said. In verse number one of chapter seven of Matthew, he said, judge not. Then look at verse number five. He says, cast out. And then, and then shalt thou see clearly. Can I paraphrase it? Jesus says, don't judge until you can see clear. If you can't see clearly enough to discern then you're not fit to make those kinds of judgments. That ought to humble every one of us, myself included. I'm telling you, this day in which we live, it befuddles me. I'm just flabbergasted at how people can treat so lightly the precious truths of God and His Word and think that there's no accountability. That scares me. 
Jesus, in this passage, taught his disciples to have proper discernment by keeping a proper perspective of these two areas. And I've written these down on their handout. Oh, I didn't print them. You don't have them. Sorry. (laughs) Take notes very quickly here. Two things. Individual accountability to God in light of their loving concern for each other. Who? His disciples. So as a follower of Christ, I must be acutely aware of my responsibility first to God and my accountability to Him. And to make sure that I am right with Him. And also that I have a responsibility in love toward my other brothers and sisters in Christ. The other people who would say, we're following Jesus too. We're disciples. I have a responsibility to them. To love them. And to make sure that I am in a place in my life where I can help if needed. It's a terrible thing to be in a place in your walk with God. If someone rushes to you and says, I've got an emergency. I've got a situation. I need prayer right now. If you've got to stop and get right with God. And take the time to do that and can't instantly be before Him. then you're not fit. And we need to be in a place where we're walking so close with God. That no matter what comes, we can help our brothers and sisters. We can be there for them. That, I believe, is the spirit of what Jesus is teaching here. Individual accountability to God in light of our loving concern for each other. That's verses 1 through 5. And then our personal responsibility to carefully carefully with discernment and discretion give out his message to a lost and dying world that encompasses verse number six and then the resources of how we get there is in verses seven and following ask seek knock all of that comes into play then and how do we discern we're going to know them by their fruits all of this whole passage just fits hand in glove so as we connect all of the dots back in chapter 5, beginning and, and then picking up this last major thrust that Jesus has in this beautiful message that he gives. Every time I sit down and study it, more comes to light, and I, I unearth a little bit more of it, and I see its beauty and the splendor of this so-called Sermon on the Mount. And I say that because it's, it's a message that he gave, but it's not entitled in the Scriptures, Sermon on the Mount. That's just what we know it as. How beautiful it is. So this judgmental attitude, Jesus says, don't have this kind of judgmental attitude. What does that connote? Well, it means looking down on a person, according to one commentator that I agree with. Uh, You know, like you have a superior attitude, looking down your nose at them, sort of to speak. Criticizing, condemning them without a loving concern. Key component that commentator pointed out was an absence of love. And multiple commentaries I consulted, you know, after I outlined the passage and seen what was here, many of them cross-referenced 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And that's revealing. This is woven through and through with what Jesus says about blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What he teaches about how we ought to operate under the law and what the law does to help us follow Jesus Christ. To shine truly as lights for Him. The flip side of the Beatitudes, the fifth one in particular. The fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Number five and number five. Coincidence? I don't think so. I think it's all woven together by the power of the Holy Spirit, the the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So first, as we look at verses one through five, I want you to notice Jesus spent some time exposing hypocrisy yet again. Now, he has already dealt with hypocrisy in this message when it comes to our prayer life, right? We don't wear a mask. We don't uh, we don't walk around. I think the question that I posed to you during that study was, who really hears your prayers? Who are you really praying to? Are you praying so that others can hear you? You know, you pray out loud and everyone hears you and thinks, oh, that's a spiritual person. Are you praying to where you're really the only one that you're concerned about and it makes you feel better? You know, we have a lot of mysticism that maybe is therapeutic in that manner today. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out for thought. Uh, It really benefits nobody but me and my peace of mind and my tranquility. Or are you praying to where it's in secret and the Father hears? So who really hears your prayers? Any prayer that falls short of the Father's ear would be one that you pray with a mask on. Some way, somehow, either fooling others or fooling yourself has to be determined. And so Jesus encourages us there to just take the mask off. Your Father already knows. Just come to Him. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to hear from you. James would say it this way. You have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, you ask amiss. They may fulfill it on your... That's the part we don't like. (laughs) Your own lusts, right? And we fight and war and we wonder why our prayers aren't getting answered. All of that's dealt with by Pastor James. This beautiful letter. Exposing hypocrisy. As disciples, we need to be able to discern the difference between logs and specks. This, I can't read these verses without having some kind of chuckle along the way within me at the kind of picture Jesus gives us. It just, I mean, I, it's, if I could be a cartoonist, oh yes, I would probably be in the wrong profession, but it's almost comical to think about how he describes this. Notice with me, though, as we get into the text, there's a prohibition. Jesus says very clearly, say the words with me in chapter 7, verse number 1, the first two words, judge not. He says that. That's the prohibition. But there's a purpose. Do you see the next word? Four-letter word, T-H-A-T? That. Judge not for the purpose of, what's the whole intent of where Jesus is going? Why should I not judge, Lord? Don't I need to be discerning? Don't, Don't I need to do? Now, let me say this as well. This, the force behind judge not, it's present. Some have argued that it could be Jesus trying to get them to stop something they're already doing. Now, let me add a clarification to that. Even if his disciples weren't guilty of this, I can think of someone right off who was, very clearly. And Jesus has been calling attention to them throughout his entire message thus far. The Pharisees and the scribes. And so the Pharisees have already hung themselves on this one. So with that, the sense stands, doesn't it? Jesus says, you you need to stop what's already happening. This is already occurring. He says, don't let it go any further. This is not the right spirit. This is the letter of the law that kills. It's not the spirit of the law that breathes life. This is going to drive people away from God, not bring them to him. They're not going to glorify God through this. Jesus says, stop dead in your tracks. Judge not. Don't go any further. Again, 
until you're ready. And when are we ready? When that inward transformation is taking place. Judge not. What's the purpose? That you be not judged. That's what the passage says. It says it right there. Clear as day. So if I don't have this judgmental spirit about me, then I don't have to worry about that when I stand before God. That's the idea. Because whatever I give out is what I'm going to get back. Now, I didn't bring it with me. I thought I should this morning. Maybe I should have. And I was going to have some, some of our children stay around with us. And I could probably, probably embarrass them pretty good. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. So in my office, above my door, I have a, I have a yardstick. And it has a measuring uh, tool on it, right? And I can measure that by the yard. And so if I were to have that yardstick up here and begin to measure, maybe, uh, maybe I bring some little ones up here and one of them is three foot tall and the other one is three and a half foot tall. Okay, if the picture is if the three and a half, you know, if, if the three foot tall one, you know, tries to tear the three and a half foot one down, then when he receives his judgment, he's going to be measured according to the same standard that he put. So what is the rule? What's the canon? What's the measure? What's the measuring rod you're using? Well, you know, the Pharisees did this because they would hold the measuring stick up to someone else. Remember that Pharisee that stood up and said, Lord, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Right there, he's already implemented the rule that he's using. The measuring standard he has, well, you know, I'm super spiritual. I measure up to this on the scale. But that publican, you know, he's he's not even on the scale. Oh, Lord, I fast twice a week. You know, I do all these spiritual things. I think that I'm not as this publican is. Jesus taught very clearly and adamantly that the person who went home justified that day was not the Pharisee. No, in fact, we're still rendering what he gave out to him that day, even here in our time this morning. He's receiving back the judgment that he gave. We put him up to the same standard he had, and we said, yeah, you missed the mark on that one. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to understand with humility, there is a purpose behind Jesus' prohibition. There's also a promise or a prize or, I phrased it this way, the recompense, a respect for the recompense of reward. Why do I say that? If I continue reading verse number two, I see Jesus explaining here. If you see the word for, that's explanatory. He says, let me explain to you why I've given you this purposeful statement about why you shouldn't judge and why you need to stop that right now. Let's put it all together. He says, for, with what judgment you meet, you judge, excuse me, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Three times we see a divine passive here, or a theological passive, if you want the technical term. That means God is the one who is giving back. God is the one who ultimately will judge in the end. And I believe there's an eschatological look here that we look forward to that last final judgment, whether you think about the judgment seat of Christ when he judges his disciples, or the last day when uh, the great white throne happens, and everyone, every dead person, I should say, clarify that according to Revelation, is judged according to their works out of the books. Now, what stood out to me here is, I don't want to get lost in, in parts of speech and all of that that's going on, but there is a, there's an impersonal verb that's being used here. What that draws my attention to is, is a reverence 
that Matthew is bringing over, I think, from Jesus. If you know the Jewish people, they have a reverence for God that they don't, they avoid writing his name. You know, they won't write Jehovah. And I'm careful when I'm in, uh, I'm in a Jew's presence, someone who is from Israel or someone who knows what they believe about that. I'm careful to respect their reverence for the name of God. And here, by Jesus using the verb that he does even, there's, there's a reverence, there's a respect. You see, Moses understood this kind of respect. In Hebrews, we're told that he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people than to have the, the pleasures of sin for a season. And so let's put the same thing on the scales and let's judge it according to Moses' scales. Did the Pharisees meet the mark? Were they living for eternal value? No. Was Moses living for eternal value? Yes. So the, the contrast is striking. Do you have a reverence? Do you understand you will be accountable to God? One day you will stand before him and give an account for every idle word. Every idle word. Every thought. Everything will be brought under, under God's judgment. And it will be measured according to his standard, not ours. And when we're up against his measuring rod, not one of us measures up. We each need the grace of God. We're all prone to this uh, missing the judgment mark, okay? Uh, there's some, some things we could talk about. I read about an owner of a manufacturing plant. One time he decided to make a surprise tour of the shop. You know, he's going to show up and announce. He's going to take a tour of the place. He's walking through his warehouse, and uh, he noticed there's a young man. He's over to the side. He's just kind of lazily leaning up against some packing crates. He's got his hands in his pockets, you know. He's doing nothing over there. The boss walks up to him, and the boss is kind of upset. I mean, you'd be upset, too, if you looked around and saw what you thought were your workers not working. I would hope that you'd get upset over that. And so the boss walks up to him, and he's angry. He says, well, just how much are you paid a week? And the young man's eyes got rather big, and he said, 300 bucks. So the boss pulled out his wallet. He peeled off three $100 bills, gave them to the young man, and said, Here's a week's pay. Now get out of here and don't ever come back. Without a word, you know, the young man stuffs that money in his pocket. He takes off. Warehouse manager was standing nearby, staring in amazement. Wow, this is this is something. The boss walked over to him and he said, Hey, now tell me, how long has that fellow been working for us? Manager said, He didn't work here. He was just delivering a package. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> judge not that you be not judged. With whatever judgment you, you judge, you shall be judged. Whatever you meet out of now maybe I don't know, maybe he'll get his three hundred bucks back, I don't know. God is the one alone who can make those kind of judgments. So that's the problem. What's what's uh, excuse me, the purpose, if you will, the prohibition. There's a purpose behind all of that. The prohibition is judge not that you be not judged. So let's look at the prescription now. What does Jesus give us as the remedy for this? If you've been on an airplane, you've seen the, the stewardess or the, the host there stand up before you and go through their, their spiel, right? And then they get to the part where you know, they pull out this little dangly thing and it's, it's an oxygen mask with, with an oxygen bag on it. And, and what's the explanation for that? What do they tell you to do first? Take care of your own mask. 
And then, so did they tell you not to help the little child that you're trying to make sure they get their oxygen mask? Did they tell you not to help them? No, they didn't. They didn't. By all means, help them. Just make sure that you're not going to pass out before you get to them. So that you're in a place to be able to help them. You know, that's a living illustration, I think, of what Jesus is saying here. Take care of yourself first. Now, usually this is backwards, isn't it? Because we're supposed to put others before us. Not this time. Because you can't help them if you can't see clearly how to do it. And you're like blind leading blind. You'll both fall in the, in the ditch. That's another passage. So what's the dilemma? The dilemma is, uh, and this is the comical part, I think, a disqualified ophthalmologist. That's a mouthful. Try to say that fast ten times. The dilemma is a disqualified eye doctor. I can say that one faster than ophthalmologist. Yes. But the word that Jesus uses for eye is where we get our term ophthalmologist from. And so it's the same Greek word in the text. Notice there's a shocking absurdity and also what I've called a surgical stupidity. What is this shocking absurdity? Well, Jesus points it out here in verse number three. Why? Do you see the questions in verse three and four? Why and how? This is, a, this is, a, <laughs> this is comical. Why beholdest thou the moat, or the little speck, if you will, some have called it sawdust, that is in thy brother's eye, notice the condition of the brother there, but considerest not the beam, or the construction timber, or the log, or the telephone pole, that is in thine own eye. Like I said, if I could be a comic. <laughs> so here it is, you walk into the eye doctor, and he says, here, let me get that little piece of dust out of your eye, and there's a log. <laughs> Okay, whoa, I'm getting out of here. You know, he's, he's going to swing around with that thing sticking out of his head and take us all down. Just boom, 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 boom. You can't even... This is, this is the humor of our Savior, I guess. Who says Jesus never laughed? I don't know. I think he might have been chuckling inside from this. You can't see that. Jesus says, why are you pointing out this little speck when you can't even see? Okay, you get it. There's a story that's told, uh, which, by the way, if you look at this, there's, there's some Hebraisms happening. There's some redundancy, and that's to teach a point. Uh, there's a technical term for it. It's tautology. But I don't believe, some commentaries were saying that Jesus digressed here. I don't see this as a digression at all. This is backing up what he's saying. This is valid material, and it, and it proves his point. There's a story that was told at the turn of the 19, 1900s, the was that the 20th century, turn of the 20th century? What are we in? We're, you know, Buck Rogers dates. I'm supposed to have flying cars and all that stuff. Now. Well, at the turn of the century, the 20th century, the world's most distinguished astro astronomer, Sir Percival Lowell, he was certain that there were canals on Mars. You know, it was about that time, all the, all the uh, war of the world stuff and the sci-fi stuff was all coming out and people were enthralled with Mars. We're still enthralled with Mars. I saw a little model, a globe of Mars with a little... Uh, astronaut standing on it yesterday at the museum we were at. So we're still, you know, enthralled with this. But when he heard in 1877 that an Italian astronomer had seen straight lines crisscrossing the Martian surface, Lowell spent the rest of his years squinting into the eyepiece of his giant telescope down in Arizona, and he started mapping out channels and canals that he saw. He was convinced that the canals were proof of intelligent life on the red planet, possibly an older 
but wiser race than humanity. That was his guess. His observations, you know, they gained wide acceptance, and none dared contradict him. Since, since that time, you know, we've sent space probes, we've orbited Mars, we've had landers on its surface. The entire planet, we've mapped it, and no one has seen a single canal. Today, we know that Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease that made him see blood vessels in his own eyes. The Martian canals, and that's air quotes there, he saw, that's nothing more than the bulging veins of his eyeballs. A malady now known as Lowell's Syndrome. So when Jesus warns, in the same way you judge, you'll be judged. Let's keep that in mind. We might strain so much. You know, I've got time maybe for one more for you, looking at this surgical stupidity. Jesus says in verse number four, <laughs> how are you going to say? Let me pull, let me, let me get that speck out. Again, no, you can't, you can't even get close to them enough to be able to see to help them. That's, this is the surgical stupidity of it all. You go into your eye doctor who's got a telephone pole sticking out of his own eye and he's trying to fix yours. I'm sorry, I'm not getting LASIK from that place. <laughs> surgical stupidity. Why would we do that? Why would we think it's any... Okay, now let's drive it home. Why is it any more rational for someone who has this big thing that they need to get right with God over and here they are trying to help everybody else along? That also is a spiritual surgical stupidity. Jesus doesn't say don't help them. By all means, help them. Just make sure that what's ailing you has been taken care of by the great physician. What is that big thing? That every time you try to help somebody else, the Holy Spirit, if you're listening to this still small voice, is saying, eh, we need to deal with this. You can't help them yet fully and help them find what they need until you get right. The exhortation here is, let me pull. It's like, no, get away from me. No. And that's the response, isn't it? Let me help you. Keep your distance. We're not accepting of an exhortation from somebody that obviously... Would you be able to see a telephone pole sticking out of somebody's eyeball? Please say yes. Or at least know that it's there because it hits you or something along the way. You can feel it if you can't see it. It's obvious to everyone. I think that plays into what Jesus is saying here too. Notice how spontaneous it is. If you look at verse number four, towards the end, he says, How wilt thou say to thy brother, Well, let me, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye. Let me get that little speck. Let me get that little piece and Jesus says, Behold, the beam is in thine own eye. Look at the word is. It's in italics. Because Jesus is so emotionally excited here about what he's saying, he just left off the verb. We have to supply it. You see how forceful this is that Jesus is saying? How rapid he's moving through this? A beam, thine own eye. You can't even, you can't even see it. Well, that's a little bit of language for you. The surgical stupidity, all right? You've heard the story of Who's going deaf? You have a man who thinks his wife's losing her hearing. You've heard that one, right? Have you heard that one? Yeah. Doctor suggests, hey, just do a simple at-home test. Here you go. So we're giving some marriage counseling and advice here today. Simple at-home test. The doctor says, all right, you go stand behind her. Ask her a question from different distances when she can, uh, and see when she can hear it. So he goes home, he sees his wife in the kitchen, she's facing the stove, and uh, 
He asked from the door, Hey, what's for dinner tonight? No answer. He moves up ten feet behind her. What's for dinner tonight? Same question, still no answer. Finally, he gets right behind her. And he says, what's for dinner tonight? His wife turns around and she says, you know the rest of it. For the third time, chicken. (laughs) Surgical stupidity. We're going to try to help somebody else. So I close with this challenge for you to heed the directive of Jesus. What's the dilemma? The dilemma is this absurdity. And it's this surgical stupidity that we try to do to help others. So what is the directive? Jesus gives us the directive in verse number 5. And he says here with a evocative of emotional address, that hypocrite, he's very emotionally involved in what he's teaching his disciples. He's not being unkind to them when he calls them this. He's pointing out the truth. And he says, you've got a mask on. And the only one you're fooling is yourself. Get rid of the mask. It's that simple. Thou hypocrite. What do you do first? Cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Wearsby said this, he said, The purpose of self-judgment is to prepare us to serve others. The purpose of self-judgment is to prepare us to serve others. The late Dr. James McGinley, he put it in his rather unique fashion, he says, I am no judge, but I am a fruit inspector. Hypocrite. How tedious is a procedure of working on someone's eye? I speak from experience. I've had LASIK, and that was an interesting pain. I can't describe how it feels because I've never felt the same kind of pain before in my life that you feel when they take a laser and burn your eyeball. It's shocking. (laughs) And it's, it's a very tender part of, of your body. And so how intimate, how, how detailed does someone need to be to be an ophthalmologist? Yeah, a tender spot. This is a place that we need to take great care for. Only after we remove the beam from our own eye can we see clearly to perform surgery on someone else and to help them with their speck and to help them with their moat. That's in their eye. And so... If we're not careful, we might do more damage to somebody else. We might hurt them worse. This is of utmost importance. So Jesus gives the directive. Let me just put it in plain old simple preacher terms. Hey, disciple, it's time to get right with God. Get right with God. Stay right with Him. And then be loving and attentive to what's going on around you. Because if we're not in that kind of place, there's no way we're going to fulfill the law of Galatians that says, bear you one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. We're not going to be able to see to carry that burden. We're not even going to know it's there because we can't discern it. We're not going to be spiritual enough to restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering our own selves, lest we also be tempted. So can you see Jesus' heart here? In verse number 6, which I didn't make it to here in our time, he's going to deal with naivety. But here in verses 1 through 5, I think we understand Jesus is helping us follow him to be disciples with a proper kind of discernment. 
So the next time someone quotes to you Matthew 7, verse number 1, make sure you take them down and help them read verse number 5. And maybe somebody will get right with God along the way, and we'll be able to see people conform to the image of Christ.